We've placed uh, review packets for the annual business meeting on the table in the foyer. Now, the bulletin says, now, this is for those of you who aren't here, so you can make sure you hear this. I just wanted to see if anybody was awake this morning. Next Sunday in the bullet, it says that the the, uh, meeting is going to be next Sunday at 6.30 p.m. We're going to change that. We're going to change it to next Sunday at immediately following the second service. Last year, the annual meeting took 15 minutes. So rather than inconvenience everybody, so everybody goes home, spends the afternoon and has to get dressed, you know, wake up again, get up from their nap and turn off the football game or whatever it is you have to do and then come back down here for a 15-minute meeting, we will just hold the meeting immediately following the second service. And that way, that way we'll probably have a, a better chance at a quorum as well because since you're already here, you'll just stay. So make sure you remember that next next week and let anyone know who's not here that's a member that it's not at 6.30. It's changed to uh, the morning service. Also, beginning on Monday evening, uh, January the 13th through noon on January 16th, there will be the uh, uh, regional pastors conference related to uh, uh, Chafer Seminary. That will be hosted, co-hosted by Presley Bible Church of West North Stonington. We're going to have all of our meetings over at North Stonington. So I'll be announcing more on that. But that is, if you are able to attend any of those meetings, then that will be good. You'll you'll learn a lot. Some of it may acquaint you with issues that you're not that concerned about. But it's always good to know whatever it is that we can learn related to what's going on doctrinally and theologically in our in our uh in our world. So uh this is designed not merely for professional clergy. Some of the guys that are coming that I know of uh aren't seminary trained and they'll be learning a lot. So we've man- we have attempted to host this and to design this so that it is not uh too far off in the uh in the cloud somewhere addressing things that people don't understand in ways they can't grasp it. So if you can, you'll find that to be profitable. And there's an evening service each night, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night. Now let me give you a little story as to why this is important. One of the things that has happened, this ties into the first area we're going to cover in our study this morning. So maybe we ought to go ahead and bow our heads and have a few moments of silent prayer before we get started, and I'll talk about this particular illustration um, as a uh, opening to the to the to the study. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can use First John one nine if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity and privilege and freedom in this nation to gather together to freely study your word, to see what you have to say to us, how you have revealed your thinking to us, that we may 
exchange the human viewpoint in our souls for the divine viewpoint that is revealed to us in Scripture. Father, we thank you for the freedoms of this nation. We continue to pray that you would protect this nation, keep our borders secure from those who seek to do us harm. There are thousands, if not millions, out there who would seek to destroy this nation and seek to do incredible damage to this nation. We pray that you would uh, foil their plans, that you would uh, allow our intelligence services to gain the proper information and correctly interpret the data they receive, that they may be able to foil these plots. We know that our protection ultimately does not reside in government agencies or military forces, but in your uh, sovereign will. Father, we pray that you'd continue to protect and watch over our president, for those uh, our leaders in Congress and leaders in the military, especially as there is the beginning of mobilization uh, in preparation for war with Iraq. We pray that you would watch over especially those men from this church, this congregation, those who are on tapes from this congregation. We pray that you would keep them safe and secure, watch over their families, provide for them. And, Father, ultimately we ask that you continue to preserve this nation uh, for the sole purpose that we might continue to send out missionaries and be a bulwark of support for Israel. Now, Father, as we gather together to worship you through the highest form of worship, which is the study of your word, we pray that you would help us to understand the things we study and be challenged by them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and before we get into the real heart of the issue, which we'll cover the next, uh, or this chapter and the next two chapters, which has to do with the area of doubtful things, I want to cover one more matter by way of introduction that is touched on in the first verse. I think this is the third or fourth hour we've covered the introduction to this chapter, and we must uh, make sure we understand the background of some of the important issues here. Back in verse 1 we read, Now concerning things offered to idols. And we have studied in the past the grammatical structure here, beginning in the Greek with the uh, phrase peri day, which means now concerning or and now this, which indicates a change in subject. We're introduced to a new subject, and that is that which uh, deals with uh, the, specifically the meat that's been offered to idols and whether or not Christians should uh, eat such meat. Then Paul makes the statement, a statement that is often abused. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Now, we've covered the first seven verses, and today we're going to start, or the first six verses. Today we're going to start in verse 7. However, there is, uh, however, um, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. The issue in verse 7 once again comes back to those who have a certain knowledge. Now, you often hear in evangelical and conservative circles, especially in this country, primarily in this country, well, we have too much knowledge. If we only applied part of what we, all of what we knew, we would be much better believers, and I have uh, laid that uh falsehood to rest, that in any given area of knowledge, you only use about 1% or 2% of your entire pool of knowledge. Knowledge is crucial. Knowledge is important. It is uh, in the Old Testament that the Lord says, my people perish for a lack 
of knowledge. And yet in this country there is a certain reaction in fundamentalist, conservative, evangelical circles toward knowledge. And that has its roots, and this is how I'm tying it into the pastor's conference and some of the things we're going to discuss there. That has its roots in what happened in the 19th century with the influx of liberalism, of Protestant theological liberalism, which is distinct from political liberalism, but I think they both buy into the same basic uh, ultimate vision of life, which you need to uh, stick around for at least the beginning of the second hour because I've got a great editorial on that that I'm going to read as part of the introduction there. Uh, this, What happened in the mid-19th century as a result of certain things that were taking place, especially in Europe, with the rejection of the Bible as the authoritative revelation of God, the Bible was no longer seen as God's revelation of himself, but the Bible is now seen as a human record or man's record of his encounters with God or with things spiritual. That shifts the whole concept of the Bible from something that is objective revelation to something that is merely a record of subjective experiences. This, of course, was not something that people just uh, just simply taught, but it was often uh, clothed in a high academic rationale, and it came to be called higher criticism. And it was a, an attack on the veracity of the Scripture, the historical orthodox view of the Scripture, and as a result of that, a very low view of the Scripture entered into, entered into churches. Now, what happened is that all around the U.S., you had churches that were uh, sending their young men to seminaries. Sometimes they would send them overseas to seminaries in, in Scotland or in Germany or Switzerland, France, where they came back with these strange new ideas. Frequently, the seminaries, such as Princeton, who, which was the last of the great Orthodox seminaries in this country to follow the liberalism, which occurred in 1927, but often the seminaries such as Union Theological Seminary, Harvard Divinity School, Yale Divinity School, even though Harvard had fallen to, de, uh, to Unitarianism back at the turn of the century, that really set the stage for liberalism. What happens is that as churches in Crossroads America, who had raised their young men on the milk and the meat of the word, who believed the Bible was the orthodox, revealed, infallible word of God, went off to seminary. The seminary professors who were frequently sent overseas to receive the more advanced credentials from schools like Tübingen and Basel and uh, Edinburgh, Aberdeen, Oxford, Cambridge, when those men returned, they had imbibed of these liberal ideas that the Bible wasn't the Word of God. So they sat, the young men coming from the heart of America sat under these professors and their faith in the Bible as the objective Word of God was challenged by the men the churches trusted. In many of these cases, they were denominational seminaries such as Princeton, which was supported by, by the Presbyterian Church and others that were supported by by uh, Baptist churches, by other denominations. They were giving their hard-earned money to support these seminaries and then sending their young men off to receive a good biblical education. And their young men were coming back from these seminaries 
and they were no longer believed the Bible was the Word of God. Well, what happened was that that developed an anti-intellectual, anti-academic mentality in the churches. Because if you're going to send your men off to get educated and they get an education and reject the the uh, veracity and the infallibility of the Word of God, then what good is an education? So it almost became it became a reaction to that, that, that in fundamentalist circles they didn't want their men going off to seminary and going off to these schools because they would be ruined uh, in terms of their doctrine. And so it be, there, it, what entered into the mainstream of evangelicalism was this very subtle form of anti-intellectualism and a reaction to getting knowledge. Now, let me tie this together with what's going on today. I think we're on the verge of seeing a new split in evangelicalism with a major chunk of evangelical all, evangelicalism already living and operating in a liberal environment, and they don't know it and they won't admit it. And this is already happening in our uh, in our major seminaries. If you think back to to uh, uh, the mid 70s, the great evangelical Orthodox seminaries that existed at that time are all teetering on the edge of liberalism. One way that this has happened is that they have adopted a liberal approach to the study of Scripture. And this is, especially in the area of the Gospels, and this is often called historical criticism. Now, methodology has to do with how you study the Bible, how you approach the Bible. So if your methodology is that that has been borrowed from the higher critics and and the liberals, then the argument is that if your methodology is liberal, then your conclusions ultimately are going to be liberal. And you're going to reach conclusions that undercut the very foundations of the Bible. And this happens primarily in the area of gospel studies. Because in the gospels, you have three gospels that are very similar. They are almost synonymous, so they are called the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, rarely does anyone ever preach or teach on what I'm about to tell you because it gets, it does get somewhat technical and somewhat complicated. But in some of these passages, you have a particular episode recorded in Matthew, also recorded in Mark, and also recorded in Luke. Sometimes it's only in two of the three, but there's a little bit of difference in the accounts. Now, it's a major question as to how do you handle those differences in light of a doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration and the infallibility of Scripture. Now, what happened in liberalism is they supposed they, that there was lying behind these three Gospels another document that we no longer have called Q. And, of course, uh, that's pure speculation and no such thing ever existed. However, in conservative circles, in most of those major seminaries that were considered orthodox um, 20 years ago, this 
whole theory of historical methodology has entered into the seminaries. Now, why am I telling you this? Why is this important for you to know? It's important for laymen to be educated on these issues because you're going to be getting men come through this church and this generation and subsequent generations who are educated at these schools. You may not be here much longer. You may be transferred. You may move to some other part of the country, and you may be going to a, a school, a, a church where the pastor has recently graduated from one of these institutions and has been influenced by this kind of thinking. Now, about four years ago, or three years ago, a man by the name of Robert Thomas wrote a book called The Jesus Crisis. He didn't actually write it. He wrote one article, and he also wrote it with a guy by the name of David Farnell. Now, David Farnell had just received his Ph.D. in New Testament studies from Dallas Seminary, and so he was well acquainted with the uh, influx of this liberal historical critical method and how it had come into the seminaries. And they... Together they edited this book, and it had several, uh, had many different chapters in it, some of which are more technical than others. One of the guys who wrote in this and has a chapter in there is, is Thomas Edgar. Tom Edgar. Dr. Edgar is professor of Greek down at Capitol Seminary, and he is, uh, a good friend. I've gotten to know him over the last few years. He's a good friend of Dan's, and is Dan's Greek professor down there at, at, um, uh, Capitol. Anyway, he's going to be introducing us to the basic issues here. It's important to know this because you never know what's going to come up in the future so that you're prepared to. What happened in churches at the end of the 19th century is that men came back from seminaries indoctrinated with liberal terminology and liberal concepts, and people in the pew who were not educated were sucked in. They didn't know what the issues were. They didn't know the questions to ask. They didn't know the subtle differences in terminology. So it's crucial for people to be aware of what these trends are and how they are affecting what's going on in the seminaries. It was uh, told to me by the president of Kriegel, who is the publisher of the Jesus Crisis, that the uh, chairman of one of the New Testament departments at one of the seminaries, I'm not going to mention which one, called him when the book came out just absolutely livid and demanding that the book be taken out of print immediately because it cast aspersions on his particular seminary, which was con- considered to be uh, one of the most orthodox of the, the uh, conservative seminaries. Of course, Kriegel refused to take it out of print, but it basically shows that in all of these schools, everyone you can probably think of, they have faculty members that have bought into this. In fact, one of the Greek professors at one of these seminaries that is considered to be one of the more conservative was interviewing for a position up here at Gordon-Conwell, uh, northwest of Boston. I don't know how many of you all are familiar with Gordon-Conwell. It's considered an evangelical seminary. And if you were to put all the evangelical seminaries across the board on a spectrum, uh, back in the 70s, most of us who went to Dallas uh, would have considered uh, Gordon-Conwell to just barely be within the evangelical camp. 
they have a very eclectic theology up there. I know of one man who graduated from Dallas a few years before me who left the dispensational fold and went into covenant theology and amillennialism and, and just published a commentary on Revelation taking what's called an idealistic view of Revelation. In other words, these specific instances don't really happen. They are just a very uh, idealized form of uh, expression indicating that ultimately God's going to defeat evil. And he is on the faculty up there. There's a whole spectrum of views up there. And um, my general thought is, even though the president up there is fairly conservative, my general thought is that they, as a whole, don't have as high a view of, a t- of the text of Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture as we were taught at Dallas and as we hold to here at Preston City Bible Church. And uh, recently I was told by a good source of two faculty members from one of these more conservative schools who over the last couple of years had been interviewed at Gordon-Conwell. And Gordon-Conwell rejected, Walt Kaiser is the president up there, rejected both of them because their view of the Scripture just wasn't high enough for Gordon-Conwell. And yet if you interviewed anybody on the street, any supporter of the seminary that they come from, any supporter would say that the school that where they teach has the highest view of Scripture of any of the seminaries around. And yet, these are the things that are going on behind the scenes today that are rarely discussed, rarely talked about, and most supporters, most of the people who are uh, leaders in, in local churches who are sending um, sending their... Their young men to these seminaries are not aware of these trends and the, the shifting emphasis that are going on at these schools. So that's why it's important for us to have knowledge. Now what Paul is attacking here in verse 1 is not knowledge of doctrine per se. What he is assaulting is just a simple academic uh, knowledge of Scripture, one that is not connected with the filling of the Spirit and, and an, uh, knowledge that is not being utilized in the realm of, of uh, uh, application of doctrine. It is knowledge for knowledge's sake, and therefore knowledge makes arrogance. So as we begin, what I want to do is focus on the doctrine of knowledge and why uh, knowledge is important. First point. First point. Too many Christians take this verse as somehow de-emphasizing knowledge or somehow it reduces the importance of knowledge. But that is not the case. Never use this verse as somehow indicating that knowledge is not important. Knowledge is always important. The Scripture emphasizes this again and again and again. Without knowledge, there is no growth. Without knowledge of doctrine, there is no growth. But it has to be the right kind of knowledge. It has to be more than academic knowledge. It has to be more than than uh, gnosis. It has to be epinosis. Epinosis is that full knowledge that is produced in the soul once we accept, once we understand it as, as gnosis, once we understand it as as academic knowledge, then we choose to believe it, and God the Holy Spirit makes that, uh, uh, converts that into epinosis knowledge in our soul, which is usable for application. Now, for those of you who are new or haven't gone through this, let me just rehearse what I call the grace learning spiral. 
the grace learning spiral because this is it's grace because God does this for every single believer. It is not based on merit. It is not based on your human IQ. It is not based on your education. Understanding spiritual truth is the same for every believer, and it is totally dependent on God the Holy Spirit. So what happens is God has a pastor teacher. Now, in the starting with the 70s and the anti-authoritarianism of the 60s, what happened in churches is they tried to de-emphasize the significance of the pastor. Now, in some cases, that was a good thing because there are churches where the pastor had elevated himself to a position uh, almost next to God. In fact, I recently heard of a church where the pastor uh, went to be with the Lord not long ago, and this pastor had taught the congregation that when they stand before the uh, judgment seat of Christ, it will be uh, their, their standing will primarily depend upon how they treated their pastor. So he had such a high view of, the, uh, of, of himself and of the pastorate that he was uh, really using that as a lever against the congregation. But the pastor is the one who is gifted by God with a gift of teaching and pastoring. Pastoring is related to feeding the sheep. Now, what that tells us is that even though believers can learn a certain amount of information by reading the Bible on their own, they can't get the kind of information they need to really advance to spiritual adulthood, to spiritual maturity, and they can't get the kind of information they need to increase and uh, increase their momentum. So God gives certain individuals whose responsibility it is to dig into the meat of the word and then to communicate that to sheep, to believers, so that they can understand the word through the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit and uh, apply it to their lives so that they can learn the doctrine necessary to grow to spiritual maturity. So the pastor-teacher communicates, and then God the Holy Spirit takes that doctrine and makes it understandable to the individual believer. Now, he doesn't understand it for you, but he makes it understandable. Now, this is roughly related to the whole process of, let's say, chewing food. In the Old Testament, the concept of chewing related to the chewing of the cud of a cow was often related to the whole idea of meditating on God's Word. That is just letting it roll over in your mind again and again and again till you, till you really understand it because you can't believe something you don't understand. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to fully understand it. Now, there are things such as the doctrine of the Trinity that finite minds can't go there. But we can understand the doctrine of the Trinity as it's revealed in the Scripture. Everything that was revealed in the Scripture is revealed to be understood. God is not revealing it to somehow cloud it or obscure it, somehow play some sort of a shell game where if we're just in the right frame of mind and hold our tongue the right way and cross our eyes the right way and get in the right state of mind, that then we might figure out what the Bible says. The Bible is not a... It is a... Uh, it's a disclosure. That's what revelation means, to unveil something. It's not veiled. It is written to be understood, but that doesn't mean that it is simple. That doesn't mean it is simple. I'm always amazed when I talk to folks and hear from folks, well, that just seems so complicated. Well, let me suggest that a triune, infinite, eternal God is not simple to understand, and his eternal thinking is not simple to understand, and don't expect it to be given to you 
uh, at a first grade or kindergarten level. Just like everything else in life that is worth knowing and worth learning about and worth applying in life, it takes some uh, mental energy in order to understand it. So the Holy Spirit makes the truth understandable, and we have to chew on it a bit before we understand it. Once we understand it, then we have to, uh, then we, we, and this involves volition. Then another point of volition comes along when we have to decide whether or not we believe it. So you can't believe what you don't know. Now, the interesting thing is this is a process. You may have understood the Trinity at one level when you were 10. And when you were 20 and you'd been around a little longer, you understood it at another level. When you were 30 and you'd been in class consistently for a while, you understood it a little more. Each time you understand it a little more clearly, it becomes a little more applicable and the epinosis is strengthened. It doesn't just all happen at once. So once we uh, understand it, we believe it, and at that point, God the Holy Spirit transfers it. When, when, it's, when it's understood, at that point, it is what the Bible calls gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, or simple academic knowledge. Then it enters into the heart of our thinking called the cardia in the New Testament, lave in the Old Testament, and at that point, it becomes uh, epinosis. E-P-I-G-N-O-S-I-S. And once it becomes epinosis, that's full knowledge, which is applicable in terms of spiritual life and spiritual growth. But so many people just have a whole bunch of gnosis floating around, and some folks don't even have that. They've just uh, heard a lot from the pastor. They've never really understood it. And so they just have a lot of verbiage that they're repeating, and they think that because they've memorized a lot of stuff that somehow they understand it. But that's not always the case. And in either the case of no understanding or the case of only academic knowledge, only understanding, that produces arrogance. The the point, that though, that we are making in point one is that too many Christians misinterpret 8.1 as de-emphasizing knowledge. Point two, we always know more about any given subject than we ever apply. In fact, application probably derives from less than 5% of our total knowledge, much of which we never use. But it is that frame of reference, it is that pool of knowledge that provides the necessary frame of reference for what we do apply. So my response to people is say, you know, if pastor, if we just applied more of what we know. Well, that's not true. You only I don't think in any area of life we ever apply more than a very small percent. So the issue is to learn more and have a greater pool of knowledge and then the amount that we we apply, which may never exceed 4%, but remember, 4% of 100 is a lot less than 4% of a, of, of, uh, of, uh, a million. So the more you know, the more information you have, the more epinosis you have, the greater will be the amount of application. So knowledge is important. Third, there are two power sources for the Christian life which are interdependent and necessary for any spiritual advance, two power sources. It's not simply knowledge, and it's not simply the Holy Spirit. The two work together. It's the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, plus knowledge of doctrine. The two working together. If you have the, uh, for example, if you have the filling of the Holy Spirit minus doctrine, 
that's really what you have in so many charismatic and Pentecostal emotional churches. They, they really don't have the filling of the Spirit. They've just identified that as some sort of emotion. And so they're, they're, they're just talking about that all the time. And there's very little knowledge of doctrine. And it's sad to say that this is true in, in, uh, this is the trend in this age. One of the great trends that I think is destroying evangelicalism in the latter part of the 20th century has been what is called the church growth movement. Now, most people never get the history of where this stuff comes from. All they know is a pastor comes along and says, well, you know, we need to reach out into the community. We need to have a greater presence in the community. And, of course, everything is couched in certain terms, and he starts doing things. Well, underlying all of those approaches is, is basically treating the gospel as if it's another uh, marketing objects. So what happens is a lot of sales techniques are brought in, where there, whereas there may be some similarities between uh, outreach, between evangelism and sales techniques. They are markedly different, and you always run into that problem. In fact, I've always had problems with putting salespeople in charge of anything on a board or teaching Sunday school because if you're a salesman, you have a very difficult time understanding why uh, salesmanship or your sales techniques shouldn't be used with the gospel. The gospel, the effectiveness of the gospel is not dependent on human methodology or technique. It is dependent upon two things. The Holy Spirit who makes the gospel clear to the person who's hearing it and the individual's volition and their response. It is not up to you. Now that does not excuse poor performance in witnessing. We should learn how to clearly explain the gospel. We should learn how to effectively give an answer for the hope, the confident expectation that is within us, First uh, Peter three sixteen. But that does not mean that we that the problem is technique. It's not well, you know, if they said this, you should say this, although that you, you learn strategy that way and that's important in some cases, but it's not up to a certain sort of package deal, which is often what happens. And church growth uh, has its roots in what was going on in terms in what was called the third wave of the Pentecostal revival in the twentieth century, and it all has its roots there. Well, not everybody today is necessarily charismatic who who gets into that, and two of the greatest uh, promoters are uh, one's out on the west coast in San Diego, the other pastors of church in, uh, in in Chicago, and the Chicago church called Willow Creek is, is the largest church in the United States. It's like 20 years old, and it started off when the pastor went out and did a lot of surveys in the neighborhood. Uh, do you go to? He would go knock on doors, and and somebody would come to the door and say, "Well, do you go to church now?" And if they didn't go to church, then he would say, well, why don't you go to church? And he would take a list of all the reasons these people gave for not going to church. Well, people aren't friendly. You know, I went down to the church down the street, but it's so big I had to park two blocks away. Um, they went in there. They, they sang a lot of songs that, well, the music just seemed foreign to me. I grew up on the on the Grateful Dead, and, and they're singing these songs that, and the music just doesn't seem to, to, uh, very interesting to me and, and I don't know the words and so I just feel uncomfortable and, and they would go on with, with statements like that. So he decided that the way to start a church was to, to, to limit all these things. So they have, uh, uh, they came up with the techniques of having all the best parking spaces labeled visitor. And so that the visitors would not have to park two blocks away. They could come right up outside the front door. 
And rather than singing a lot of uh, traditional hymns, they would try to sing a lot of uh, choruses and a lot of music that was based on, on rock and based on contemporary music forms so that people would be more comfortable. And rather than, rather than have them hold a hymnal, they would project uh, the, the words up on the screen. And rather than have the people sing a lot of songs they didn't know, they would just have, have musical groups come in and sing, and it would turn into more of an entertainment format than a, a, a worship. All these things came out of the church growth movement. And the interesting thing is that I read, a, read an analysis, detailed scholarly analysis that was done by a, a doctoral student. It was part of his doctoral dissertation on uh, what went on there. And he was generally very favorable to this church. He was a sociology major, I think, at Northwest University. And he just was going to study this church for a year, functioned as an intern, and uh, he wanted to analyze just what the dynamics were that made this church grow from nothing to about 15,000 members in a period of 20 years. So he did a study, and one of the more interesting things that came out of the study, you're going to love this, that the church had 300 on the pastoral staff, 300 pastors on staff. Among those 300 pastors on staff, Guess how, in the, in, the, in the conglomerate of all of their libraries, you would never guess how many systematic theologies, how many theology textbooks, how many systematic theologies were owned by these 300 pastors? Zero. Not one. 300 pastors, not one, had owned a, a theological, a systematic theology. Now, guess how many had any kind of degrees from a Bible Institute, Bible College, or seminary? Once again, none. Why? Oh, well, they're going to come with all kinds of ideas, what we can't do, and they're going to, they're going to limit our creativity, and we're not going to be able to, uh, to really reach people. See, that's always the, uh, that's always the, the, the line is that we can't reach people for Christ if we're limited by by all that knowledge, that's what they're saying. We don't want people who know anything about the Bible because that's going to keep us from reaching anybody for Christ. And so um, you have a church that, uh, and oh, I'm, I heard the pastor speak when I was at a pastor's conference when I was a student at Dallas a few years ago when I was working working on my doctorate there. And, and oh, he talked about how much they learned the Bible. And I've talked to people who went there, and they really didn't. They don't know anything about the Bible because everything's geared to making it acceptable to, here's the catchphrase, unchurched Harry and unchurched Mary. And see, if you gear everything to the unchurched, then you're never going to really produce maturity for anybody else. And you totally denied the role of God the Holy Spirit in teaching the Word. Now, my whole philosophy of ministry is 180 degrees opposite from that. I believe that if you're going to take people to any level of maturity, you have to teach at the level of maturity you expect people to grow to. If you teach at a level of first grade, nobody's ever going to grow beyond first grade. If you teach at a fifth grade level, no one listening to you can ever get beyond that. Now, when you teach at a higher level, that doesn't mean you don't make it simple for the first graders and the second graders, but you have to have something there for people to advance to spiritual maturity. Knowledge is essential, but it is not alone. It is also operates with the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So there are two crucial things in the Scriptures, our knowledge of the Word plus the filling of the Holy Spirit. Point number three. Or, excuse me, point number four. 
Point number three was there two power sources. Point number four, knowledge of the Word of God is never, ever a problem. Knowledge of the Word of God is never, ever a problem. It, uh, you can't know enough. In fact, we're going to, God Himself is omniscient and He's infinite. We are always going to be finite creatures with finite knowledge. We will spend infi- infinity with God or eternity. We will spend eternity with God, and we will constantly be learning more and more. The more I study the Word of God, the more I realize how little I know and how much more I need to study it in order to get to second base. I hope I made it to first base. And that's a a fortiori argument that if that's true for me with all the knowledge I have, how much more is that true for believers who are just coming to church every Sunday and every Wednesday night, who haven't had uh, the intense training and the years of training that I've had in the Scriptures. So if I don't know much, guess what, folks? We have a long way to go. There is so much to learn. There is so much to explore. There is so much we need to dig into in the Scriptures. We have barely scratched the surface, and yet we have... 99% of evangelical Christians running around today saying, we've got too much knowledge. You know, let's just sit and hold hands and, 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 and glow in the joy of our salvation. So knowledge of the Word of God is never a problem. And that's essentially what they're saying is you can know too much about the Bible. Can you know too much about the Bible? No. That's blasphemy. Knowledge in the Bible, in fact, is always emphasized as a high priority. Knowledge in the Bible is always emphasized as a high priority. Look at this in terms of a, of a logical structure. First of all, we can't, major premise, we cannot know God unless He reveals Himself to us. Minor premise, God only reveals Himself substantially in the Bible. He only reveals Himself propositionally. He reveals Himself generally in creation. But but that's not a propositional, substantial revelation. So God only reveals Himself substantially in the Bible. Therefore, we can know God substantially. We cannot know God. That should be there's a typo there. Therefore, we cannot know God substantially unless we know the Bible. We cannot know God substantially unless we know the the Bible. Now let's build on that in the next series of uh, premises. Major premise, we cannot know the Bible unless we spend thousands of hours in Bible study. See, this builds on the previous three, three statements. We can't know God unless he reveals himself to us. God only reveals himself substantially in the Bible. Therefore, we, can know God substan- we cannot know God substantially unless we know the Bible. Now let's build on that. We cannot know the Bible unless we spend, spend thousands of hours in Bible study. Now, my version, which is, the, uh, which is probably not too different from most other people's versions, my version of the Scripture has around uh, 1,600 pages in it. Some may have more, some may have less, but if you think you can learn inside and out a 1,600-page book in an hour a week, then the only person you're deceiving is yourself. And you're really wasting time. 
learning to exchange the human viewpoint in your soul with divine viewpoint doesn't happen an hour a week or even two hours a week. When you consider the assault that is made on your soul from human viewpoint and the assault that is made on your soul from television, movies, media, friends, peers, family, everything coming from from tradition, coming from rationalism, coming from empiricism, coming from mysticism, all of that, you think you can you can deal with that and expunge all that stuff from your soul on the basis of an hour a week or two hours a week, then you're fooling yourself. It takes a, a mammoth effort. Now, when you're a brand-new believer, you may think, well, that just sounds like uh, that's a little unrealistic to expect that. But see, one, as you grow, you're going to realize that Bible doctrine, the study of the Word of God, isn't something you do. It is everything, and, and everything you are, and everything you do is secondary to that because it is that relationship with God which informs everything else that we do in life. And if that's not squared away, then everything else is going to be problematical. So we have to make the Bible, the study of the Bible, the highest priority in our lives. The major premise, we cannot know the Bible unless we spend thousands of hours in Bible study. The minor premise, we cannot know God substantially unless we know the Bible. See, we picked that up from the previous previous uh, syllogism. And then the conclusion, therefore, we cannot know God substantially unless we spend thousands of hours in Bible study. It doesn't happen any other way. That is the way God has decreed that we will know Him. We don't know Him directly. We don't know Him immediately. We don't know Him intuitively. We don't know Him mystically. We don't have existential encounters with Him. We know Him only through the Word of God and what the Word of God says. Therefore, knowledge is emphasized in the Bible as the highest priority. Sixth point. Simple, that should be simple, not simply. Simple academic knowledge of God is not the goal, but is a means to the goal. See, the goal is not how much you know. The goal is not how many doctrinal notebooks you have filled up. The knowledge is, the goal is not how well you're going to be able to explain or, or articulate the incomprehensibility of God or the doctrine of inspiration or the creator-creature distinction or atonement or propitiation or any of those doctrines. That's not the goal, but that is the means to the goal. You have to understand those things to understand who God is and what he has done for you. We can't get to the goal of knowing God and glorifying Him unless we first know His Word academically. That's the first stage. We have to have academic knowledge before we can have full knowledge. We have to know things about God before we can learn who God is and have a uh, mature relationship with Him. Seventh point. Seventh point. The Bible as the Word of God touches on every dimension of human experience. The Bible is the Word of God touches on every dimension of human experience. It doesn't leave anything out. The Bible doesn't leave anything out. It touches on every dimension. It has something to say about everything to provide us with a framework for understanding life from God's perspective. 
Now, that's crucial, and this is one reason why uh, after we finish our Wednesday night series on uh, salvation, we're going to go to a new study beginning with Genesis. Now, that is daunting. I don't know if we'll get out of the first three chapters in the first three years, but we probably will. But it's so important because the first 11 chapters of Genesis are the most attacked chapters in all of the Bible. And the reason they're the most attacked chapters in all of the Bible is they're the foundation to everything else in the Bible. Everything from Genesis 12 to, to, to Revelation 22 is based on what happens in Genesis 1 through 11. If anything in Genesis 1 through 11 is not true, then the rest of the Bible falls. So Genesis 1 through 11 provides the framework within which the rest of the Bible operates. And, if, and the first 11 chapters of Genesis, Genesis supply us with the basic foundation and framework for all within which all of our thought should take place. So uh, we'll start Genesis probably in uh, around the 1st of February. The Bible touches on every dimension of human experience, family, work, career, handling your money, raising your children, making political decisions, paying taxes, facing illness and adversity, thinking about history, reading literature, appreciating films or fiction, writing or reading editorials, investing in the stock market. Everything is addressed in the Bible in one way or another. And so too often what we do is, is for lack of time, we never really get into some of the real foundational issues in the Scriptures. I've been impressed by stuff I have read over the years by men who have greater knowledge of economics and finances than I do of all that the Bible says about economics, that the whole concept of, of theoretical economics should be grounded in the Word of God. Just think about how much uh, salvation is articulated within the framework of economic terminology, redemption, expiation. Uh, we have a debt against us. You know, all these are economic terms. The economic terminology has to do with, with the exchange of something. We exchange Christ's death for our death. Uh, there's an exchanger. So there's, there's economic principles there to understand the foundations of, um, of theoretical economics. And, and uh, this is what the old Puritans found. Now, there are elements of old Puritan theology that we definitely don't agree with, but this is one of the things that th- they uh, did develop that was profound in their thinking. They tried to establish a society that applied the Word of God consistently in every single area of life. And unfortunately, too many Christians have uh, rejected that, and we've bought into too much modernism and postmodern thinking where we think that these ideas in Christianity just has to do with what we learn about the Jesus and the Apostle Paul and, and some doctrine. We don't realize that the Bible addresses foundational economic theory, that the Bible addresses foundational political theory, legal theory, ethics, all of which are gra- have to be grounded somewhere, and they're either going to be grounded in the Word of God or they're going to be grounded in human experience. And even though human experience may approach the Bible in some areas, may be similar to the Bible in some areas, it has to be. we have to develop this consistently from the Scripture itself. So there is a tremendous amount to study that we barely... Uh, that we that we barely ever develop or talk about. Let's look at some 
emphases in Scripture. This is point number eight. Just some scriptural scriptures that emphasize knowledge. I've almost often made the point that the spiritual life is a life based on thinking. It's not based on feeling. It's not based on emotion. It's not based on impressions or intuition. It's based on thought. Now, let's review some of these passages in Scripture, and this is just a little bit of what the Scripture says about knowledge. Psalm 25, 4 and 5, the psalmist says, Make me know thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth, and teach me. For thou art the God of my salvation. For thee I wait all the day. The emphasis on knowing and learning and being taught. Psalm 92, 6, A senseless man has no knowledge nor does a stupid man understand this. Psalm 119.66, Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in thy commandments. Proverbs 1.2 states, To know wisdom and discernment, to discern the sayings of understanding. That's the purpose of, uh, of Proverbs, to know wisdom and instruction. Uh, furthermore, it's stated in verse 4, Proverbs 1, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge and discretion. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So these churches that de-emphasize learning, that have 20-minute sermonettes on Sunday morning, the Word of God judges them and says that fools despise wisdom and instruction. Psalm 122, How long, O naive ones, will you love simplicity? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Psalm 129, I mean Proverbs 129, Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. This is why their destruction came on them. Proverbs 2.5, Then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 2.10, For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. The emphasis all through the first two chapters of Proverbs is actually on knowledge and wisdom. Then in Proverbs 10.4, Wise men store up knowledge, but with the mouth of the foolish... Ruin is at hand. Wise men store up knowledge. You always learn. You never learn too much. Life is a process of learning. Once you stop learning, once you lose that hunger to know the Word, that's when life begins to fall apart. We have to maintain that that motivation, that enthusiasm. It's not always the same as it was when you were a baby believer and you were just so excited, but, but it's going to change to a more mature uh, appreciation and desire and hunger for the Word. So, uh, Proverbs 15:14 says, The mind of the intelligent seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on folly. Notice, the mind of the intelligent seeks knowledge. Proverbs 18.15, the mind of the prudent acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Isaiah 5.13, in God's condemnation of Israel, he says, Therefore my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. No epinosis in the soul. John 8.32, in the New Testament, we have the same emphasis on knowledge. Jesus said in John 8.32, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. There's no freedom in the spiritual life if you do not know doctrine, know the truth. And then Romans 6.3, I want you to 
see what Paul says. He says he's correcting the problems with the spiritual life. He says, don't you know? Don't you know? Are you ignorant of this? Don't you know? In other words, he assumes that they better make knowledge a priority. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Then in verse 6, knowing this, because you know something. Actually, it's a causal participle. Because you know this. That's the basis for living the spiritual life, because you know something. Again, you have a causal participle in Romans 6, 9. Because you know that Christ, having been raised, you're able to live a spiritual life because you know certain things. Romans 6.16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves? The emphasis on knowledge. Then in Romans 7, verse 25, thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ our Lord, so that on the one hand I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. We serve God with our mind, with our thinking. Romans 8, 6 and 7. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. The emphasis is on thinking, the focus of your thinking. You could even translate this because the thought, the thinking of your soul set on the flesh is hostile to God. Uh, verse, or verse 6, for the thinking of your soul set on the flesh is death, but the thinking in your soul set on the spirit is life and peace. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but we be transformed by the renewing of your thinking, by the renewing of your thoughts. You have to exchange human viewpoint for divine viewpoint. Romans 12:16. be of the same mind, the same thought with one another. Uh, Romans 10, 2 and 3, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Does that sound familiar? You ever run across Christians who have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge? They reject knowledge. They just want to have an emotional experience with God. Why? Verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. Ephesians 1.17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, this is Paul's prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit that is an attitude of wisdom and revelation in what? In the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart, that is your thinking, may be enlightened so that you may know something. That is the hope of his calling, the riches, the glory, the inheritance of the saints. Philippians 1.9, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in what? In real knowledge. Love abounds in knowledge. Notice that connection because we'll come back to it uh, next hour. The connection between love and knowledge. Colossians 1.10, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. How do you please God? Increasing in the knowledge about God. Colossians 3.10, the new self is being renewed uh, according to a true, uh, to, renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. 2 Timothy 2.25, uh, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Second Timothy 3, 7. All, uh, and this is a, a condemnation of those who are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. See, believers are supposed to come to a knowledge of the truth. 
Second Peter 1, 2, grace and peace multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And Second Peter 3, 18, but grow by means of grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We grow by means of knowledge, and we only have that knowledge through a study of God's Word. So the conclusion then, point number, I think it's point number eight, the Christian life is based on thinking. Thinking is based on knowledge, on knowledge, and knowledge is the result of learning. Let me give you that process again. The Christian life is based on thinking. Thinking is based on knowledge. Knowledge is the result of learning. Learning is the result of consistency, determination, prioritization, and refusing to be distracted by the details of life. Let me go over that again. The Christian life is based on thinking. Thinking is based on knowledge. And knowledge is the result of learning. You don't get there without going through that difficult process. Learning is the result of consistency, determination, prioritization. That means you make it the first priority and you make decisions in light of that. When issues come up, to distract you, whatever it might be in life, comes up, options on Sunday, going out of town, Wednesday night. Of course, value today is we have tape ministries, which enable us to go over things again and again and again. But we have to make the knowledge of doctrine the priority and refuse to be distracted by the details of life. That involves work, that involves health, that involves energy, that involves family, that involves anything you can think of, social life romance, travel, whatever it is, when you put anything else ahead of the study of the Word of God, that is not only idolatry, it's the path to spiritual self-destruction. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your Word, to be reminded about the importance of knowing your Word and the priority of knowing your Word. And we pray that you would help us to uh, apply this consistently in our own lives, recognizing that, that there is so much more to learn, so much more that you have revealed to us, that, that we have only uh, barely begun in our understanding and comprehension of all that you have given us, all that you have provided for us, and how to think about life and the details of life the way you have described in your scriptures. Above all, Father, we thank you for your grace that you provided a grace-based salvation for us. It's not based on who we are, what we do. It's not based on uh, anything we fail to do or anything we might do in life. It is based exclusively on the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. He is the one who has all the merit. It is his death that paid the penalty, and all that is left for us is to either accept or reject that free gift. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning, if they are without hope, without an understanding of their salvation, without certainty about their eternal destiny, we pray that right now they would make that sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. God the Father knows exactly what you are trusting or relying in for your salvation, whether it's your efforts, your works, your religious observances, or whether it's Jesus Christ alone. At the instant that your faith is in Christ alone, at that instant you are born again, you receive eternal life, you receive a number of other spiritual assets along with the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Spirit. 
From that point on, you can grow and advance spiritually in your knowledge about God. But all you need to do is make that decision. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have learned today, that we may apply them consistently in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.